Section 22 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 1, Chapter 22, Arrival and Return of the Bridal Escort. In the meantime, Lucretia's trousseau was being prepared with an expense worthy of a king's daughter. On December 13, 1501, the agent in Rome of the Marchese Gonzaga wrote his masters as follows. The portion will consist of three hundred thousand ducats, not counting the presents which Madonna will receive from time to time. First, a hundred thousand ducats are to be paid in money in installments in Ferrara. Then there will be silverware to the value of three thousand ducats, jewels, fine linen, costly trappings for horses and mules, together worth another hundred thousand. In her wardrobe she has a trimmed dress worth more than fifteen thousand ducats, and two hundred costly shifts, some of which are worth a hundred ducats apiece. The sleeves alone of some of them cost thirty ducats each, being trimmed with gold fringe. Another person reported to the Marchesa Isabella that Lucretia had one dress worth twenty thousand ducats, and a hat valued at ten thousand. It is said, so the Mantuan agent writes, that more gold has been prepared and sold here in Naples in six months than has been used heretofore in two years. She brings her husband another hundred thousand ducats, the value of the castles, Cento and Pieve, and will also secure the remission of Ferrara's tribute. The number of horses and persons the Pope will place at his daughter's disposal will amount to a thousand. There will be two hundred carriages, among them some of French make, if there is time, and with these will come the escort which is to take her. The Duke finally concluded to send the bridal escort, although the bulls were not ready for him. As he was anxious to make the marriage of his son with Lucretia an event of the greatest magnificent, he sent a cavalcade of more than fifteen hundred persons for her. At their head were Cardinal Ippolito and five other members of the ducal house. His brothers, Don Ferrante and Don Sigismondo, also Niccolò Maria d'Este, Bishop of Adria, Meliaduza d'Este, Bishop of Comacchio, and Don Ercole, a nephew of the duke. In the escort were numerous prominent friends and kinsmen or vassals of the house of Ferrara, lords of Correggio and Mirandola, the Counts Rangone of Modena, one of the Pio of Carpi, the Counts Bevilacqua, Roverella, Sagrato, Strozzi of Ferrara, Annibale Bentivoglio of Bologna, and many others. These gentlemen, magnificently clad, and with heavy gold chains about their neck, mounted on beautiful horses, left Ferrara December ninth, with thirteen trumpeters and eight fifes at their head. And thus this wedding cavalcade, led by a worldly cardinal, rode noisily forth upon their journey. In our time such an aggregation might easily be mistaken for a troop of trick-riders. Nowhere did this brave company of knights pay their reckoning. In the domain of Ferrara they lived on the duke, in other words, at the expense of his subjects. In the lands of other lords they did the same, and in the territory of the church the cities they visited were required to provide for them. In spite of the luxury of the Renaissance, traveling was at that time very disagreeable. Everywhere in Europe it was difficult then as it is now in the Orient. Great lords and ladies, who today flit across the country in comfortable railway carriages, traveled in the sixteenth century, even in the most civilized states in Europe, mounted on horses or mules, or slowly in sedan chairs, exposed to all the inclemencies of wind and weather and unpaved roads. The cavalcade was thirteen days on the way from Ferrara to Rome, a journey which can now be made in a few hours. 
Finally, on December 22nd, it reached Monterosi, a wretched castle 15 miles from Rome. All were in a deplorable condition, wet to their skin by winter rains and covered with mud, and men and horses completely tired out. From this place the cardinal sent a messenger with a herald to Rome to receive the Pope's commands. Answer was brought that they were to enter by the Porta del Popolo. The entrance of the Ferrarese into Rome was the most theatrical event that occurred during the reign of Alexander VI. Processions were the favorite spectacles of the Middle Ages. State, church, and society displayed their wealth and power in magnificent cavalcades. The horse was symbolic of the world's strength and magnificence, but with the disappearance of knighthood it lost its place in the history of civilization. How the love of form and color of the people of Italy, the home of processions, has changed was shown in Rome July 2, 1871, when Victor Emmanuel entered his new capital. Had this episode, one of the weightiest in the whole history of Italy, occurred during the Renaissance, it would have been made the occasion of a magnificent triumph. The entrance into Rome of the first king of United Italy was made, however, in a few dust-covered carriages, which conveyed the monarch and his court from the railway station to their lodgings. Yet in this bourgeois simplicity there was really more moral greatness than in any of the triumphs of the Caesars. That the love of parades which existed in the Renaissance has died out is perhaps to be regretted, for occasions still arise when they are necessary. Alexander's prestige would certainly have suffered if, on the occasion of a family function of such importance, he had failed to offer the people as evidence of his power a brilliant spectacle of some sort. The very fact that Adrian VI did not understand and appreciate this requirement of the Renaissance made him the butt of the Romans. At ten o'clock on the morning of December 23rd, the Ferrarese reached the Ponte Mole, where breakfast was served in a nearby villa. The appearance of this neighborhood must, at that time, have been different from what it is today. There were casinos and wine-houses on the slopes of Montemario, whose summit was occupied even at that time by a villa belonging to the Melini, and on the hills beyond the Flaminian Way. Nicholas V had restored the bridge over the Tiber, and also begun a tower nearby, which Calixtus III completed. Between the Ponte Mole and the Porta del Popolo there was then, just as there is now, a wretched suburb. At the bridge crossing the Tiber, they found a wedding escort composed of the senators of Rome, the governor of the city and the captain of police, accompanied by two thousand men, some on foot and some mounted. Half a bowshot from the gate the cavalcade met Caesar's suite. First came six pages, then a hundred mounted noblemen, followed by two hundred Swiss, clothed in black and yellow velvet with the arms of the Pope, birettas on their heads and bearing halberds. Behind them rode the Duke of Romagna with the ambassador of France at his side, who wore a French costume and a golden sash. After greeting each other mid the blare of trumpets, the gentlemen dismounted from their horses. Caesar embraced Cardinal Ippolito and rode at his side as far as the city gate. If Valentino's following numbered four thousand and the city officials two thousand more, it is difficult to conceive taking the spectators also into account how so large a number of people could congregate before the Porta del Popolo. The rows of houses which now extend from this gate could not have been in existence then, and the space occupied by the Villa Borghese must have been vacant. At the gate the cavalcade was met by nineteen cardinals, each accompanied by two hundred persons. The reception here, owing to the oration, required over two hours, Consequently, it was evening when it was over. 
Finally, to the din of trumpets, fifes, and horns, the cavalcade set out over the Corso, across the Campo di Fiore, for the Vatican, where it was saluted from Castle Sant'Angelo. Alexander stood at a window of the palace to see the procession which marked the fulfillment of the dearest wish of his house. His chamberlain met the Ferrarese at the steps of the palace and conducted them to His Holiness, who, accompanied by twelve cardinals, advanced to meet them. They kissed his feet, and he raised them up and embraced them. A few moments were spent in animated conversation, after which Caesar led the princes to his sister. Leaning on the arm of an elderly cavalier, dressed in black velvet, with a golden chain about his neck, Lucretia went as far as the entrance of her palace to greet them. According to the prearranged ceremonial, she did not kiss her brothers-in-law, but merely bowed to them, following the French custom. She wore a dress of some white material embroidered in gold, over which there was a garment of dark brown velvet trimmed with sable. The sleeves were of white and gold brocade, tight and barred in the Spanish fashion. Her headdress was of a green gauze, with a fine gold band and two rows of pearls. About her neck was a heavy chain of pearls with a ruby pendant. Refreshments were served, and Lucretia distributed small gifts, the work of Roman jewelers among those present. The princes departed highly pleased with their reception. This much I know, wrote El Prete, that the eyes of Cardinal Ippolito sparkled, as much as to say, she is an enchanting and exceedingly gracious lady. The cardinal likewise wrote the same evening to his sister Isabella of Mantua to satisfy her curiosity regarding Lucretia's costume. Dress was then an important matter in the eyes of a court. In fact, there was never a time when women's costumes were richer and more carefully studied than they were during the Renaissance. The Marchioness had sent an agent to Rome, apparently for the sole purpose of giving her an account of the bridal festivities, and she had directed him to pay special attention to the dresses. El Prete carried out his instructions as conscientiously as a reporter for a daily paper would do now. From his description, an artist could paint a good portrait of the bride. The same evening, the Ferrarese ambassadors paid their official visit to Donna Lucretia, and they promptly wrote the Duke regarding the impression his daughter-in-law had made upon them. Illustrious Master, Today, after supper, Don Gerardo Saricini and I betook ourselves to the illustrious Madonna Lucretia to pay our respects in the name of Your Excellency and His Majesty Don Alfonso. We had a long conversation regarding various matters. She is a most intelligent and lovely and also exceedingly gracious lady. Your Excellency and the illustrious Don Alfonso, so we were led to conclude, will be highly pleased with her. Besides being extremely graceful in every way, she is modest, lovable, and decorous. Moreover, she is a devout and God-fearing Christian. Tomorrow she is going to confession, and during Christmas week she will receive the communion. She is very beautiful, but her charm of manner is still more striking. In short, her character is such that it is impossible to suspect anything, quote, sinister of her. But on the contrary, we look for only the best. It seems to be our duty to tell you the exact truth in this letter. I commend myself to Your Highness's merciful benevolence. Rome, December twenty-third, 1501, the sixth hour of the night. Your Excellency's servant, Johannes Lucas. Pozzi's letter shows how anxious were the Duke and his son, even up to the last, 
it must have been a humiliation for both of them to have to confide their suspicions to their ambassador in rome and to ask him to find out what he could regarding the character of a lady who was to be the future duchess of ferrara the very phrase in pozzi's letter that there was nothing quote sinister to be suspected of lucretia shows how black were the rumours that circulated regarding her his testimony therefore is all the more valuable and it is one of the most important documents for forming a judgment of lucretia's character had she been afforded a chance to read it her mortification would no doubt have outweighed her satisfaction the ferrarese princes took up their abode in the vatican other gentlemen occupied the belvedere while the majority were provided for by the citizens who were compelled to entertain them at that time the popes handled their private matters just as if they were affairs of state and met expenses by taxing the court officials who in spite of this made a good living and even grew rich by the pope's mercy the merchants likewise were required to bear a part of the expense of these ecclesiastical functions many of the officials grumbled over entertaining the ferrarese and provided for them so badly that the pope was compelled to interfere during the christmas festivities the pope read mass in st peter's the princes were present and the duke's ambassador described alexander's magnificent and also quote, saintly bearing in terms more fitting to depict the appearance of an accomplished actor the pope now gave orders for the carnival to begin and there were daily banquets and festivities in the vatican el prete has left a naive account of an evening's entertainment in lucretia's palace in which he gives us a vivid picture of the customs of the day the illustrious madonna so wrote the reporter appears in public but little because she is busy preparing for her departure sunday evening st stephen's day december twenty sixth i went unexpectedly to her residence her majesty was in her chamber seated by the bed in a corner of the room were about twenty roman women dressed a la romanesca quote, wearing certain cloths on their heads the ladies of her court to the number of ten were also present a nobleman from valencia and a lady of the court nicola led the dance they were followed by don ferrante and madonna who danced with extreme grace and animation she wore a camorra of black velvet with gold borders and black sleeves the cuffs were tight the sleeves were slashed at the shoulders her breast was covered up to the neck with a veil made of gold thread about her neck she wore a string of pearls and on her head a green net and a chain of rubies she had an overskirt of black velvet trimmed with fur colored and very beautiful the trousseau of her ladies-in-waiting are not yet ready two or three of the women are pretty one catalina a native of valencia dances well and another angela is charming without telling her i picked her out as my favorite yesterday evening twenty eighth the cardinal the duke and don ferrante walked about the city masked and afterwards we went to the duchess's house where there was dancing everywhere in rome from morning till night one sees nothing but courtesans wearing masks for after the clock strikes the twenty-fourth hour they are not permitted to show themselves abroad although the marriage had been performed in ferrara by proxy alexander wished the service to be said again in rome to prevent repetition the ceremony in ferrara had been performed only vis folo the exchange of rings having been deferred on the evening of december thirtieth the ferrarese escorted madonna lucretia to the vatican when alfonso's bride left her palace she was accompanied by her entire court and fifty maids of honour 
She was dressed in gold brocade and crimson velvet trimmed with ermine. The sleeves of her gown reached to the floor. Her train was borne by some of her ladies. Her golden hair was confined by a black ribbon, and about her neck she wore a string of pearls, with a pendant consisting of an emerald, a ruby, and a large pearl. Don Ferrante and Sigismondo led her by the hands. When the train set forth, a body of musicians stationed on the steps of St. Peter began to play. The Pope, on the throne in the Sala Paulina, surrounded by thirteen cardinals and his son Caesar, awaited her. Among the foreign representatives present were the ambassadors of France, Spain, and Venice. The German envoy was absent. The ceremony began with the reading of the mandate of the Duke of Ferrara, after which the Bishop of Adria delivered the wedding sermon, which the Pope, however, commanded to be cut short. A table was placed before him, and by it stood Don Ferrante, as his brother's representative, and Donna Lucretia. Ferrante addressed the formal question to her, and on her answering in the affirmative, he placed the ring on her finger with the following words. This ring, illustrious Donna Lucretia, the noble Don Alfonso, sends thee of his own free will, and in his name I give it thee. Whereupon she replied, And I, of my own free will, thus accept it. The performance of the ceremony was attested by a notary. Then followed the presentation of the jewels to Lucretia by Cardinal Ippolito. The duke, who sent her a costly present worth no less than seventy thousand ducats, attached special weight to the manner in which it was to be given her. On December 21st he wrote his son that in presenting the jewels he should use certain words which his ambassador Pozzi would give him, and he was told that this was done as a precautionary measure, so that, in case Don Lucretia should prove untrue to Alfonso, the jewels would not be lost. Until the very last, the Duke handled the Borgias with the misgivings of a man who feared he might be cheated. On December 30th, Pozzi wrote him, quote, There is a document regarding this marriage which simply states that Donna Lucretia will be given, for a present, the bridal ring, but nothing is said of any other gift. Your Excellency's intention, therefore, was carried out exactly. There was no mention of any present, and Your Excellency need have no anxiety. Ippolito performed his part so gracefully that the Pope told him he had heightened the beauty of the present. The jewels were in a small box, which the Cardinal first placed before the Pope, and then opened. One of the keepers of the jewels from Ferrara helped him to display the gems to the best advantage. The Pope took the box in his own hand and showed it to his daughter. There were chains, rings, earrings, and precious stones beautifully set. Especially magnificent was a string of pearls, Lucretia's favorite gem. Ippolito also presented his sister-in-law with his gifts, among which were four beautifully chased crosses. The cardinal sent similar presents. After this, the guests went to the windows of the salon to watch the games in the piazza of St. Peter. These consisted of races and a mimic battle for a ship. Eight noblemen defended the vessel against an equal number of opponents. They fought with sharp weapons, and five people were wounded. This over, the company repaired to the chamber of the parrots, where the Pope took his position upon the throne, with the cardinals on his left, and Hippolyto, Don Lucretia, and Caesar on his right. El Preto says, Alexander asked Caesar to lead the dance with Don Lucretia, which he did very gracefully. His Holiness was in continual laughter. The ladies of the court danced in couples, and extremely well.
The dance, which lasted more than an hour, was followed by the comedies. The first was not finished, as it was too long. The second, which was in Latin verse, and in which a shepherd and several children appeared, was very beautiful, but I have forgotten what it represented. When the comedies were finished, all departed except His Holiness, the bride, and her brother-in-law. In the evening the Pope gave the wedding banquet, but of this I am unable to send any account, as it was a family affair. The festivities continued for days, and all Rome resounded with the noise of the carnival. During the closing days of the year, Cardinal San Severino and Caesar presented some plays. The one given by Caesar was an eclogue with rustic scenery, in which the shepherds sang the praises of the young pair, and of Duke Ercole and the Pope as Ferrara's protector. The first day of the new year, 1502, was celebrated with great pomp. The various quarters of Rome organized a parade in which were thirteen floats led by the gonfalonier of the city and the magistrates, which passed from the Piazza Navona to the Vatican, accompanied by the strains of music. The first car represented the triumph of Hercules, another Julius Caesar, and other various Roman heroes. They stopped before the Vatican to enable the Pope and his guests to admire the spectacle from the windows. Poems in honor of the young couple were declaimed, and four hours were thus passed. Then followed comedies in the chamber of the parrots. Subsequently, a moresca, or ballet, was performed in the, quote, sala of the Pope, whose walls were decorated with beautiful tapestries, which had been executed by order of Innocent VIII. Here was erected a low stage decorated with foliage and illuminated by torches. The lookers-on took their places on benches and on the floor, as they preferred. After a short eclogue, a jongleur, dressed as a woman, danced the moresca to the accompaniment of tambourines, and Caesar also took part in it, and was recognized in spite of his disguise. Trumpets announced a second performance. A tree appeared, upon whose top was a genius who recited verses. These over, he dropped down the ends of nine silk ribbons which were taken by nine maskers who danced a ballet about the tree. This moresca was loudly applauded. In conclusion, the Pope asked his daughter to dance, which she did with one of her women, a native of Valencia, and they were followed by all the men and women who had taken part in the ballet. Comedies and moresche were in great favor on festal occasions. The poets of Rome, the Porcaro, the Melini, Ingirami, and Evangelista Madalini, probably composed these pieces, and they may also have taken part in them, for it was many years since Rome had been given such a brilliant opportunity to show her progress in histrionics. Lucretia was showered with sonnets and epithalamia. It is strange that not one of these has been preserved, and also that not a single Roman poet of the day is mentioned as the author of any of these comedies. On January 2nd, a bullfight was given in the Piazza of St. Peter's. The Spanish bullfight was introduced into Italy in the 14th century, but not until the 15th had it become general. The Aragonese brought it to Naples and the borders to Rome. Hitherto the only thing of the sort which had been seen was the bull-baiting in the Piazza Navona or on the Testaccio. Caesar was fond of displaying his agility and strength in this barbarous sport. During the Jubilee year, he excited the wonder of all Rome by decapitating a bull with a single stroke in one of these contests. On January 2nd, he and nine other Spaniards, who probably were professional matadors, entered the enclosure with two loose bulls, where he mounted his horse and with his lance attacked the more ferocious one single-handed. Then he dismounted, and with the other Spaniards continued to goad the animals.
After this heroic performance, the Duke left the arena to the matadors. Ten bulls and one buffalo were slaughtered. In the evening, the menechmi of Plautus and other pieces were produced in which was celebrated the majesty of Caesar and Ercole. The Ferrarese ambassador sent his master an account of these performances, which is a valuable picture of the day. This evening, the menechmi was recited in the Pope's room, and the slave, the parasite, the pandor, and the wife of the menechmis performed their parts well. The menechmi themselves, however, played badly. They had no masks, and there was no scenery, for the room was too small. In the scene where the Menechmus, seized by command of his father-in-law, who thinks he is mad, explains that he is being subjected to force, he added, This passes understanding, for Caesar is mighty, Zeus merciful, and Hercules kind. Before the performance of this comedy, the following play was given. First appeared a boy in woman's clothes who represented virtue, and another in the character of fortune. They began to banter each other as to which was the mightier, whereupon fame suddenly appeared, standing on a globe, which rested on a float, upon which were the words, Gloria Domus Borgi. Fame, who also called himself Light, awarded virtue the prize of her fortune, saying that Caesar and Ercole by virtue had overcome fortune. Thereupon he described a number of the heroic deeds performed by the illustrious Duke of Romagna. Hercules, with a lion's skin and cub, appeared, and Juno sent fortune to attack him. Hercules, however, overcame fortune, seized her, and chained her, whereupon Juno begged him to free her, and he, gracious and generous, consented to grant Juno's request on the condition that she would never do anything which might injure the house of Ercole or that of Caesar Borgia. To this she agreed, and in addition she promised to bless the union of the two houses. Then Roma entered upon another float. She complained that Alexander, who occupied Jupiter's place, had been unjust to her in permitting the illustrious Donna Lucretia to go away. She praised the Duchess highly, and said that she was the refuge of all Rome. Then came a personification of Ferrara, but not on a float, and said that Lucretia was not going to take up her abode in an unworthy city, and that Rome would not lose her. Mercury followed, having been sent by the gods to reconcile Rome and Ferrara, as it was in accordance with their wish that Donna Lucretia was going to the latter city. Then he invited Ferrara to take a seat by his side in the place of honor on the float. All this was accompanied by descriptions in polished hexameters, which celebrated the alliance of Caesar and Ercole, and predicted that together they would overthrow all the latter's enemies. If this prophecy is realized, the marriage will result greatly to our advantage, so we commend ourselves to Your Excellency's mercy. Your Highness's servants, Johann Lucas and Gerardus Serracenus, January 2nd, 1502. Finally, the date set for Lucretia to leave, January 6th, arrived. The Pope was determined that her departure should be attended by a magnificent display. She should traverse Italy like a queen. A cardinal was to accompany her as legate, Francesco Borgia, Archbishop of Cosenza, having been chosen for this purpose. To Lucretia he owed his cardinalate, and he was a most devoted retainer, quote, an elderly man, a worthy person of the house of Borgia, so Pozzi wrote to Ferrara. Madonna was also accompanied by the bishops of Carniola, Venosa, and Orte. Alexander endeavored to persuade many of the nobles of Rome, men and women, to accompany Lucretia, and he succeeded in inducing a large number to do so. The city of Rome appointed four special envoys, who were to remain in Ferrara as long as the festivities lasted, Stefano del Bufalo, 
Antonio Paoluzzo, Giacomo Frangipane, and Domenico Massimi. The Roman nobility selected for the same purpose Francesco Colonna of Palestrina and Giuliano, Count of Anguillara. There were also Ranuccio Farnese of Matelica and Don Giulio Raimondo Borgia, the Pope's nephew and captain of the Papal Watch, together with the eight other gentlemen belonging to the lesser nobility of Rome. Caesar equipped at his own expense an escort of two hundred cavaliers, with musicians and buffoons to entertain his sister on the way. This cavalcade, which was composed of Spaniards, Frenchmen, Romans, and Italians from various provinces, was joined later by two famous men, Ivo d'Alegre and Don Ugo Moncada. Among the Romans were the Chevaliers Orsini, Piero Santa Croce, Gian Giorgio Cesarini, a brother of Cardinal Giuliano, and other gentlemen, members of the Alberini, Sanguigni, Crescenzi, and Mancini families. Lucretia herself had a retinue of 180 people. In the list, which is still preserved, are the names of many of her maids of honor. Her first lady-in-waiting was Angela Borgia, una damigella elegantissima, as one of the chroniclers of Ferrara describes her, who was said to have been a very beautiful woman, and who was the subject of some verses by the Roman poet Diomede Guidalotto. She was also accompanied by her sister, Donna Girolama, consort of the youthful Don Fabio Orsini. Madonna Adriana Orsini, another woman named Adriana, the wife of Don Francesco Colonna, and another lady of the house of Orsini, whose name is not given, also accompanied Lucretia. It is not likely, however, that the last was Giulia Farnese. A number of vehicles which the Pope had ordered built in Rome, and a hundred and fifty mules bore Lucretia's trousseau. Some of this baggage was sent on ahead. The Duchess took everything the Pope permitted her to remove. He refused to have an inventory made, as Bene in Bene, the notary had advised. I desire, so he stated, to the Ferrarese ambassadors, that the Duchess shall do with her property as she wishes. He had also given her nine thousand ducats to clothe herself and her servants, and also a beautiful sedan chair of French make, in which the Duchess of Urbino was to have a seat by her side when she joined the cavalcade. While Alexander was praising his daughter's graciousness and modesty, he expressed the wish that her father-in-law would provide her with no courtiers and ladies-in-waiting, but those whose character was above question. She had told him, so the ambassadors wrote their master, that she would never give his holiness cause to be ashamed of her, and, quote, according to our view, he certainly never will have occasion, for the longer we are with her, and the closer we examine her life, the higher is our opinion of her goodness, her decorum, and modesty. We see that life in her palace is not only Christian, but also religious. Even Cardinal Ferrante Ferrari ventured to write Ercole, whose servant he had been, a letter in which he spoke of the Duke's daughter-in-law in unctuous terms and praised her character to the skies. January 5th, the balance of the wedding portion was paid to the Ferrarese ambassadors in cash, whereupon they reported to the Duke that everything had been arranged, that his daughter-in-law would bring the bull with her, and that the cavalcade was ready to start. Alexander had decided at what towns they should stop on their long journey. They were as follows, Castelnovo, Civita Castellana, Narni, Terni, Spoleto, and Foligno. It was expected the Duke Guidobaldo or his wife would meet Lucretia at the last name placed and accompany her to Urbino. Thence they were to pass through Caesar's estates, going by way of Pesaro, Rimini, Cesena, Forli, Faenza, and Imola to Bologna, and from that city to Ferrara by way of the Po. 
as the places through which they passed would be subjected to very great expense if the entire cavalcade stopped the retinue was sometimes divided each part taking a different route the pope's brief to the priors of nepi shows to what imposition the people were subjected dear sons greeting and the apostolic blessing as our dearly beloved daughter in christ the noble lady and duchess lucretia de borgia who is to leave here next monday to join her husband alfonso the beloved son and first-born of the duke of ferrara with a large escort of nobles two hundred horsemen will pass through your district therefore we wish and command you if you value our favour and desire to avoid our displeasure to provide for the company mentioned above for a day and two nights the time they will spend with you by so doing you will receive from us all due approbation given in rome under the apostolic seal december twenty eighth fifteen o one in the tenth year of our pontificate numerous other places had similar experiences in every city in which the cavalcade stopped and in some of those where they merely rested for a short time lucretia in accordance with the pope's commands was honored with triumphal arches illuminations and processions all the expense of which was borne by the commune january sixth lucretia leaving her child rodrigo her brother caesar and her parents departed from rome probably only two persons were present when she took leave of anazza none of those who describe the festivities in the vatican mention this woman by name the chamber of the parrots was the scene of her leave-taking with her father she remained with the pope some time departing on caesar's entrance as she was leaving alexander called after her in a loud voice telling her to be of good cheer and to write him whenever she wanted anything adding that he would do more for her now that she had gone from him than he had ever done for her while she was in rome then he went from place to place and watched her until she and her retinue were lost to sight lucretia set forth from rome at three o'clock in the afternoon all the cardinals ambassadors and magistrates of the city accompanied her as far as the porta del popolo she was mounted on a white jennet caparisoned with gold and she wore a riding habit of red silk and ermine and a hat trimmed with feathers she was surrounded by more than a thousand persons by her side were the princes of ferrara and the cardinal of cosenza her brother caesar accompanied her a short distance and then returned to the vatican with cardinal ippolito thus lucretia borgia departed leaving rome and a terrible past behind her forever end of chapter twenty two end of book one